Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Honoré Fainone Jeffers, Tiari Jones, and Stephanie Powell Watts. You will now hear Honoré Fainone Jeffers provide introductions. Good to see everybody, okay? All right. So um, I am Honoré Fanon Jeffers, and I have here with me the great Tiari A. Jones and the great <laughs> Stephanie Powell Watts, two award-winning, nationally known fiction writers who both hail um, from the South and uh, who write about the South. I'm a fiction writer, but although I'm the oldest person on the panel, I'm the baby in terms of fiction accomplishments. That's why I'm wearing my really cute outfit, right? Okay. Um, I'm in a, a participant, but I am also the moderator for this panel. I won't read biographies. I assume that they would be in the schedule as they usually are, but they're not. Um, so I just, um, before uh, the ladies begin their remarks, and then uh, I'll, I'll start with my remarks, and then we'll just go alphabetical order. I'd like um, for you all, uh, Stephanie, will you tell us, Lord, this is tacky, sorry. Will you tell us your, um, your books? Okay. Um, my first book was uh, We Are Taking Only What We Need. It was a book of short stories, and I have a book coming out in April called No One Is Coming to Save Us, and it's a novel. Ms. Tiari. Um, first off, congratulations, Stephanie, on your new book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. She did not add that it's a selection for the Barnes & Noble Discover program, which is a very big deal, and I'm just very excited to see her on this list. Um, I'm Tiari Jones. I'm the author of three novels, most recently Silver Sparrow. All right. And don't you have a book coming out next year? One year from yesterday, I have a book coming out. I'm very excited about it. I'm really excited, too. All right, um, so we'll begin with a brief reading. Stephanie is incredibly modest. I forgot about that, so I should have, like, harangued her ahead of time to bring something, right? Because typically we creative writers just want to, you know, have everybody see our sparkle and dash. But um, Stephanie is going to read um, remarks. Uh, Tiari is going to read um, from... I'm going to read from my, my book, my forthcoming piece. Your forthcoming book. And um, I'm going to read from a very brief excerpt from my novel, which is finished and in the hands of my agent. And, um, and I, she ordered me to uh, read from it today and to tell the um, title. And so I'm real, real nervous. So do you all remember that song, Tyrone, by Erica Badu and how she started? I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my insert expletive now. And that's me, okay? So y'all be nice. So um, my book is a multi-generational saga about an African-American family living in central Georgia in a fictitious town called Chickasetta. But it's also about uh, one real-life figure, a very famous man whose devotion to Southern black folk intersects with this family's story. 
Um, I began this book thinking about a quote from The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Ever since I was a child, these songs have stirred me strangely. They came out of the South unknown to me, one by one, and yet at once I knew them as of me and of mine. And so my novel is entitled The Love Songs of W.B. Du Bois. Um, this excerpt is from the origin story uh, of this family, and it takes place in the very early days um, of Georgia when the land was occupied by Creek and Cherokee people, and it takes place a 100 years before Dr. Du Bois was born. There once was a young man, an African of the Coromante tribe from across the big water. He had been captured and sold to a ship, and on this side of the ocean, he was a slave to an Englishman who beat him and who didn't feed him enough. The young man ran away one night, plunging into the forest, but he hadn't brought along food, and he had no hunting skills. Before his escape, his owner had told him that red men could catch fish by thrusting their hands into fishes' mouths and throwing them up on the bank. The Coromante had tried it, but had fallen into the river. The current was perilous, carrying him upstream and coughing him out. When he crawled along the bank, he encountered a village of creek people. He was cut with scratches, he was wet, skin to garment, and he was hungry. His hair stood at some length, and the villagers saw that instead of soaking it, the river water clung to the tufts. Africans were not rare sights, but the people had no idea what the Coromante was saying. He was good at gesturing, though, and he was very handsome. His skin was dark and quite smooth, his muscles well-formed, his teeth were white as sweet corn. When the Coromante told the story about trying to seize a catfish by the mouth and falling into the river, there were blares of laughter. He laughed, too, but he was terrified. Along with fishing stories, the Englishman had told him that Indians killed men but ate their flesh before they had properly expired. The Coromante didn't want to be a slave, though, the lowest rank from where he came from. He was willing to take a gamble, and if these people ate his flesh, he would die as free as he had been born. The Englishman came looking for his slave. He was pleasant and seemingly unafraid of being eaten. To those in the village who spoke his language, he asked, had they seen an African with lots of hair? He wiped his fingers across one shoulder and the other, making a hissing noise. There were brands of ownership on the slave's body. The people were concealing the Coromante from capture as they had grown fond of his open-armed manner. An elder told the Englishman that, yes, his slave had come through, but he had not stayed. He pointed the Englishman to the northeast. After some time, the Coromante was adopted by a family in the village. They were of the Panther clan. 
From an uncle of the family, he learned his necessary skills. He had been kidnapped across the big water before he went through manhood training. The uncle showed him how to use poison on the water or a net to catch smaller fish and how to catch the bigger ones by grabbing onto their mouths, ignoring their bites. He was now the Coromantee Panther. He proved himself capable of supporting a wife. He had many women ready to marry him, and the woman that he chose was of the highest rank. She was from the Wind Clan. They accepted the match because there were other African men who had married Creek women who had birthed strong children, men like Niniwagichi and Black Factor who rode hard without fear. This woman of the wind was lean and had strong ankles and calves. Perhaps she was beautiful, though all young women are beautiful in their ways, and this is not that kind of story. Her husband moved into her dwelling, which is the way of the people, and their children would belong to the clan of their mother. This didn't disturb him, for in his own land, his tribe had traced through mothers too. Yet men are men, and the Coromante panther struggled with the woman of the wind. He shouted, and she cried, and he was remorseful, and the sun rises, and the moon collects years. When the husband's anger came upon him, the woman of the wind jutted her chin and poked her finger in his chest. She told him the obscurities of her mind. Once he struck her, and after holding her cheek, she said, I would sleep very lightly if I were you, for I am stoking the fire, and tonight I shall burn your manhood with coals. He did not rest well for a long time but he never hit her again. One day by the hearth, he whispered to her, you have given me a home to live where I can be free. I do not owe you my life, but I owe you my happiness. That is what I have to say. He did not linger at the hearth after his speech. He could tell funny stories and kill a bear, but he fumbled when speaking his heart. Tiara Jones. Thank you so much for that lovely reading, Honoré. You've been working on this book a long time, and we can tell. I don't know if that's an insult. No, or it means that you can tell the. No, it means you can tell the care you put in it. It's not a rush job. Thank you, Tiara. It's careful work. I appreciate you. I'm going to read from my um, new novel. It's called An American Marriage, and it's about a young couple. They've been married 18 months. They're just, just barely married, and the husband is arrested, and he is in prison for a crime he does not commit. And this is when this is their letters. Part of it is epistolary. I always wanted to write an epistolary novel. Um, ever since The Color Purple, I've always wanted to write a novel and letters, and so I thought I would share with you a couple of the letters that our couple exchanges when he when he's first um, sent away. His name is Roy. Her name is Celestial. This is from her to him. Dear Roy, I'm writing this letter sitting at the kitchen table. I'm alone in a way that's more than the fact that I'm the only person living within these walls. Up until now, I thought I knew what was and wasn't possible. 
Maybe that's what innocence is, having no way to predict the pain of the future. When something happens that eclipses the imaginable, it changes a person. It's like the difference between a raw egg and a scrambled egg. It's the same thing, but not the same thing at all. That's the best way I can put it. I look in the mirror, and I know it's me, but I can't quite recognize myself. Sometimes it's exhausting for me simply to walk into the house. I try and calm myself, remember that I've lived alone before. Sleeping by myself didn't kill me then, and it will not kill me now. But this is what loss has taught me of love. Our house is not simply empty. Our house has been emptied. Love makes a place in your life. It makes a place for itself in your bed. Invisibly, it makes a place in your body, rerouting all your blood vessels, throbbing right alongside your heart. When it's gone, nothing is whole again. Before I met you, I was not lonely, but now I'm so lonely that I talk to the walls and sing to the ceiling. They say that you can't receive mail for at least a month. Still, I'll write to you every night. Yours, Celestial. And now this one is from him. Dear Celestial, I don't think I've written a letter to anyone since I was in high school and I was assigned a French pen pal. And that whole thing only lasted about 10 minutes. I know for sure that this is the first time I ever wrote a love letter, and that's what this is going to be, a love letter. Celeste, I love you, I miss you, I want to come home to you. Look at me, telling you the things you already know. I'm trying to write something on this paper that'll make you remember me, the real me, not the man you saw standing in a broke-down country courtroom, broke down myself like a sandcastle on a rainy afternoon. I was too ashamed to turn toward you, but now I wish I had, because right now I would do anything for one more look at you. This love letter thing is uphill for me. I've never even seen one unless you count the third grade. Do you like me? Check yes or no. <laughs> don't answer that. A love letter is supposed to be like music or Shakespeare, but I don't know anything about Shakespeare. But for real, I want to tell you what you mean to me, but it's like trying to count the seconds of the day on your fingers and toes. Why didn't I write you love letters all the while so I could be in practice? Then I would know what to do. That's how I feel in here every day, like I don't know what to do or how to do it. But you've always known how much I care, right? You never had to wonder. I've never been a man for words. My daddy showed me that you do for a woman. Remember that time you damn near had a nervous breakdown because it looked like the tree in the front yard was thinking about dying? Where I'm from, we don't believe in spending money on pets, let alone trees. But I couldn't bear to see you like that, so I hired a tree doctor. See, in my mind, that was a love letter. The first thing I did as your husband was to sit you down, like the old folks say. You were wasting your time and your talents doing temp work. You wanted to make your art, so I made it happen. No strings. That was my love letter to say, I got this. Do what you need to do, whatever that is. But now, all I have is this paper and this raggedy ink pen. It's a ballpoint, but they take away the casing so you just have the nib in this plastic tube of ink. I'm looking at this thinking, this is all I have to be a husband with? But look at me, I'm still here trying. And this is another one from him. Dear Celeste, hello from Mars. That's not really a joke. The, the dorms in here are all named for planets. This is the truth, I could not make this up. Your letters were delivered to me yesterday, each and every one of them, and I was very happy to receive them. Overjoyed. I'm not even sure where to start. I haven't even been in here two months, and I have already had three cell partners. The one I have now says he's here for good. He says it like he has some kind of inside track. His name is Walter. He's been incarcerated for most of his adult life, so he knows what's what around here. 
I write letters for him, but not for free. It's not that I'm not compassionate, but you get no respect when you do things without, without money. This is something I learned in the workforce, but it's 10 times true in here. Walter doesn't have any money, so I let him give me cigarettes. Don't make that face. I know you, girl. I don't smoke them. I trade them from other things like ramen noodles. I kid you not. The letters I write for Walter are to women he meets through the personals ads. You'll be surprised how many ladies want a pen pal with convicts. Don't get jealous. Sometimes I get irritated staying up all night answering his questions. He says he used to live in Louisiana, so he wants me to bring him up to date. When I say I haven't lived there since I went to college, he says he's never set foot on a college, so he wants me to tell him all about that, too. He's even curious about how I got the name Roy. It's not like my name is Patrice Lumumba, something that needs explaining, but Walter is what my mother would call a character. We call him the ghetto Yoda because he's always getting philosophical. I accidentally called him the country Yoda one time, and he got mad. I swear it was an honest mistake, and it's one I won't make again. But it's all good. He looks out for me, saying us bow-legged brothers got to stick together. You should see him. His legs are worse than mine. So that's all I got in terms of atmosphere, or all that I want you to know about. Don't ask questions about the details. Just suffice it to say that it's bad in here. Even if you killed somebody, you don't deserve more to, to spend more than a couple years in here. Please tell your uncle to get on it. There's so much in here that makes you want to stop and say, hmm, like they say. For example, there are about 1,500 men in this facility, and that's the same number of students at Dear Morehouse. I don't want to seem to be some kind of crazy conspiracy nut, but it's hard not to think about things in that way. For one, prison is full of people who call themselves dropping science. And second, things in here are so bent that you think somebody must be bending it on purpose. My mother wrote to me, too, and you know her theory. is Satan. My dad thinks it's the Klan. Well, not the Klan specifically with hoods and crosses, but more like America with three Ks. I don't know what I think besides thinking that I miss you. I finally got to make my visitors list last night, and on the top of, on the top of it is you, Celestial Gloria Davenport. They want your full government name. Meanwhile, please keep the letters coming. How did I forget you have such a pretty handwriting? If you decide not to be a famous artist, you could go and be a school teacher with that penmanship. You must bear down on the pen because the paper buckles. At night, when the lights are out, not that they're ever really out, they just make it dark enough that you can't read, but too light to really sleep. But when they cut the lights off, I run my fingers over your letter and try to read them like Braille. And thank you for putting money on my books. You have to buy anything you think you might want in here, underwear, socks, anything you need to try to make your life a little better. This isn't a hint, but it would be nice to have a clock radio. And of course, the main thing that would make my life a little better would be seeing you. Love, Roy. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here with um, these two amazing writers. Um, uh, thank you, Honoré, for putting this together. This is, um, this is really an honor for me. Um, I was in Atlanta a couple weeks ago. Oh, I should first say that Honoré did mention to me, bring something to read. And uh, I was foolish enough not to not to listen to oh, that. I, okay. I'm, so, I'm so sorry. But, I but was, you can just <laughs> tell by looking at her, it's going to be great, right? Just the whole atmosphere. <laughs> but um, but I do have a few thoughts about Zora that I wanted to share with you. Mm. Um, 
Uh, I was at I was in Atlanta at a conference at the American Libraries uh, Library Association conference a couple of weeks ago, and there were two middle-aged black women in the in the bathroom, and they were cleaning up at the convention center. So I was at I was washing my hands at the mirror so I could see behind me, and one of the women had a mop, and a, a white woman about the same age as uh, as the woman who was cleaning up came up to her and said, uh, "Thank you for the work that you do." So I so I kind of stop and she's checking out what what's happened and the black woman um she looked at the at the white woman but she her face didn't ex- didn't change her expression didn't change she said nothing and she continued on her way and so I thought I wonder I wonder what that's about mm. and um uh, so I saw her talk to the other black woman who was working in the in the bathroom. So I knew she wasn't deaf. So that was my maybe she's deaf. Maybe she didn't hear her. Maybe she didn't understand her. So you know, the, the, I was thinking about what could possibly be the explanation. I thought maybe she f- saw something condescending in the white woman's face, or maybe she was just busy because it was a very busy con- convention and she didn't have time to engage with with people in that, in that way. So, you know, there, there are all kinds of explanations, but I just, I felt like it was such a, um, a moment and I, I was trying not to judge the situation at all. And I, I really don't want to judge either of the, of the women. They probably were both well-meaning. They probably both had things on their minds that they, that they want to do. I just feel like that those rich and strange moments are what, we write about ah. <laughs> you know, those kinds of things that we can't quite understand. We can't, and we're trying to figure out that this this whole big mess of class and race and gender and all all of the of the things that we have on us all the time and and um, and uh, governing our behavior all the time. We're there at that moment, and so I thought about that. That so much of what Zora did and what what she was doing what she was having to negotiate and navigate you know all the time uh, how to survive in this kind of crazy world um, and probably most of you have read uh, Zora uh, have read she's she wrote everything she was you know she wrote nonfiction she wrote fiction she uh, she was an ethnographer she, poetry. she was poetry yeah so I mean you know there's nothing that she couldn't she couldn't do and all the time she's having to navigate that that um, that crazy world um, uh, so my characters too are small town folks they're southern um, but my writing is set in uh, post integration of south and about many of the people that I know or that uh, are related to, in some ways to the people that I know that kind of thing most of the protagonists are like me they're first generation of African Americans in the south after institutionalized Jim Crow my parents are youngish, a little bit older than retirement age, but neither of them ever went to school with white people. Um, my my mother's um, in my mother's case that was that was a choice. Her very last year of school, she was um, offered the chance to go to school to go to the integrated school, but no nobody in her class actually did that. Um, and there, and I'm sure you know, there are plenty of reasons for that. And I'm from North Carolina, where schools were not uh, 
desegregated really until 1974, not completely desegregated. So uh, Jim Crow has hardly had time to vacate the premises in, um, in the world that I write about. And so there are echoes of it all over. And it, um, it seems like even though it's not uh, officially around or institutionally around, it is, it is alive and well. So added to that are these kind of um, significant, heartbreaking economic losses from the places where, uh, where I grew up and where I'm from. I'm from North Carolina, where it used to be that furniture was king. And uh, in, if you couldn't work anywhere else, you could work at one of those at a plant or a factory making a furniture. Um, but that, that has disappeared uh, almost, almost completely from in where I'm from. So in hard times, people suffer. Um, some of them go to jail, and black and brown ones go to jail in greater numbers. Um, some of them do illegal things. Some of them don't, as, uh, as Atari was just mentioning in her, in her work. Sometimes that, that's the consequence, even though you don't. Um, and when I was a kid, I remember that, um, that, that different kind of fe- uh, feeling in North Carolina, even in a place where people were very poor, um, there still wasn't the kind of um, people knew that they could eventually make some living, that there could be some money coming into the household. But there, but that that idea is leaving, and so that's that's the backdrop where I want to situate my characters. You know, uh, in a in in this place of. Uh, despair, a little bit of desperation, and the, a desperation that I have felt too, but not quite, not quite in the same way. But one of the things that I'm um, really conscious of is that I don't want to um, be naively nostalgic about poverty and despair. Um, uh, Zora never, never was, even though her characters are beautiful and humorous and well-rounded and interesting. She wasn't naive about that because it's, it's terrible and it sucks to be poor. It sucks to work in places that feel, make you feel like nothing. It sucks to risk your freedom because you can't imagine that there are other things that you could do. But I wanted to um, showcase a time and a place and a people and a community of strivers who were trying to get the best out of uh, the situation that they had. You know, what's interesting is you, you didn't bring anything to read, but you anticipated the conversation, and that was that was just... Um, I both I have regional. We're just gonna, I'm going to try to move down into a more intimate kind of situation, um, but I have um, regional connections to um, the both of you because I grew up partly in Durham, North Carolina, right? And um, and then my people are from Eatonton, and I grew up. Um, my adolescence was in Atlanta, and. Um, a little bit less Tony than you, Tiari, um, because my parents had separated. So I moved from, um, I deal a lot with um, class in my work, too. And we're going to talk about that with Zora Neale Hurston. But I deal a lot with class in my work um, because my mother comes from very poor working class people. She's the first person in her family to um, go past seventh grade. Her father was um, illiterate, and um, she um, got a, a, a um, scholarship to Spelman College. And she used to talk about, yay! <laughs> 
I'm the black sheep in the family. I'm the one of my sisters that did not go to Spelman. And I'm incredibly um, embarrassed these days because I went to Talladega. Um, and you all can Google. And I think most of y'all black folks know what I'm talking about. But, um, yeah, and she used to talk about when her um, when she, w- she went back to Eatonton, Georgia, she taught Alice Walker. And, um, yeah, 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 Miss um, Alice is a real sweet person. My mama was just in the hospital, like, about three months ago, and Miss Alice came and visited her in the hospital and stuff, right? And so it's interesting thinking about Miss Alice and her connection with Zora Neale Hurston, right? And um, to Yari, what is, what, what, you know, and you don't have to have a connection, but do you do what do you feel about her work? Is her work is Zora Neale Hurston's work important to consider or to reject? And there's no wrong answer here. Well, that's good. Um, I always feel I've always felt a connection with Zora Neale Hurston as you know, I studied her when I was in college. Those the books you read when you're a very young person, they make such an emotional impact on you. Mm-hmm. And you know, their eyes are watching God, just such a touchstone. Piece. And I've always liked Janie, and I like the way that Zora Neale Hurston um, talked about class mobility. And now that I live in New York, I can also feel a little Zora-esque as this southern person in New York City. Mm. So it's, all, you know, where you're always like a little bit of an oddity. Like you don't realize what an oddity you are until you leave home. And, and she's from Eatonton, this all-black town. I'm from Atlanta, which is not an all-black town, but it's a Eatonville. black town. Eatonville. Yeah. It's a black town, though. You know, and so I grew up, as you know, I was educated at Spelman College. I went to all black high schools. I was educated by those colored school teachers in the South, you know, who made us memorize all the Langston Hughes. Like, you could wake me up in the middle of the night and I can quote the whole entire Harlem Renaissance because it was drilled into us. So, like Zora, I grew up just, you know, with this. I did not know really that black people were a numerical minority in this country. I thought that when people said minority, they were talking about political power. I didn't know it was like just counting because when people said that black people were a numerical minority, I felt, or that when people said white people were the majority, I felt the way you do when they tell you the earth is 87% water. And you're like, I guess, but how am I sitting here then? How does that even work? (laughs) And so I grew up with that kind of understanding about narrative in my mind. I never felt marginalized. Like Zora, I never felt, someone had to tell me I was marginalized because I didn't know. And I think that that is probably the way that I identify with her the most. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting that you bring up the whole thing about, uh, you know, not feeling like a minority. Because in Durham, we had, or Durham, as we say, (laughs) we had uh, 25 black millionaires. And uh, uh, I'm a red, black, and green diaper baby, and so my my parents were cultural activists. Uh, My father was a black arts movement poet. And they were very involved in politics. And even though the schools, you're right, like uh, 1974, the schools still were not integrated. We had de jure integration. I see you nodding, sister. We had de jure integration. 
but we did not have de facto integration. And I, I just remember there was this one, we had one little white girl in all of Fayetteville Street Elementary School, Kelly. I still remember Kelly's name. And then we had Bernadette, who's Puerto Rican, who thought she was white, but she wasn't. And that was interesting because, well, she might have thought she was white, and maybe it said that on her birth certificate, but none of the teachers treated her like she was white. So it was like a really interesting thing. And so I grew up with this sort of arrogance about being a black person. Um, and probably that comes from mama having, you know, accomplished so much, you know, coming, you know, really going up the class ladder. But she always kept that kind of, I don't know if, if you're, you know, you got that, but she kept this real folkloric thing, you know. So I remember she used to always say, don't nothing go over a mule's back that don't buckle under his belly. <laughs> and when I first read Their Eyes Were Watching God, and I saw, don't nothing go over the devil's back that don't buckle under his belly. And I, I recognized every single one of those people. I recognized those gossiping ladies in the very first um, scene of their eyes were watching God. When they're talking, you know, about Jamie. That was my grandmama. My grandmama knew everybody's business, and she would she would look in the newspapers to see who black had died, and then she would go to the funeral, and then she would talk about the repast, whether it had been, she's like, you know they didn't have no fried chicken at the repast. You know they didn't have no chicken at that repast. You know, so it was like, I really recognized but this is what I want to ask this, and this might seem a silly question or a strange question. Does shame ever enter into your depictions? Like, do you ever feel like you're not supposed to reveal, not shame, but like that you're telling tales out of school about, you not and two sister, about... <laughs> The work, because I know for me, um, you know, reading Zorna Hurst and knowing the, the kind of tension in the Harlem Renaissance, right, about her depiction of these working class people, and ironically, W.B. Du Bois, you know, did not care a lot for her depictions. How do you feel when you're doing class? You know, I feel that. Sometimes as a Southern writer, you know, I'm an urban Southern writer, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I'm a member of the Fellowship of Southern Writers, and sometimes I feel, you know, I'm from, I'm from Atlanta. I write about people living in the city, and I often feel like people think almost like that's a marginalized segment of the Southern experience. Mm. Um, I was on a panel with somebody, and he said that people think the Southern literature is about grandmothers and mules. And, you know, and I grew up in Atlanta, and I'd really, my grandparents lived really far away. I didn't grow up under my grandmother's wing in that way, and I've never seen a mule in my life. I've read about them, I understand them metaphorically, but I've never seen a mule. They stank. I can tell <laughs> you that so, right there. And so um, I, I write about class, but I write about class in, um, in, in an urban setting, but I don't feel, sh I really, I don't feel shame. Um, I think it's because, again, I think with this being centered in my own educational experience, I don't have that the burden of shared representation. Like, I feel like if I write 
a black person that's behaving terribly. I don't think I don't think it means anything in terms of the collective. I feel it just doesn't bother me. I think when I, mean, I write a book, I feel like your book is your entire universe of people. And in your entire universe of people, you have people who behave in so many different kinds of ways. I don't assign it that. I think that's how you can also get it. You can get yourself tripped up in your head when you take your own depictions too seriously and decide imbue them with the weight of the whole world. You know, this is one character. This is another character. You have your entire body of work as a time over which to write so many different kinds of characters. I grew up as a writer very quietly. Like, no one was deeply interested in my writing. Um, I see some people here in the crowd who knew me when I was just a little baby writer, and they encouraged me. But in general, I didn't have that feeling of, what is the world going to say about what I've written? Because I never thought the world was going to say anything about what I've written. So I didn't have all that, like, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. But sometimes I do feel like, as a Southern writer, I have a whole different... I have anxieties. That's just not one of them. But I feel sometimes that I have... That I must have signed up for the wrong set of anxieties because I don't feel like I worry about the things that other people worry about. I worry, but just not about that. Okay, okay. Mm. All right, what about you, Stephanie? Uh, maybe this has to do uh, a little bit with how I grew up because it's different from both of you. Um, we, I went to, to school in, um, in the rural south. I'm from, I grew up on a dirt road, you know, uh, and so our communities were um, almost exclusively African-American. But uh, when we went out into the uh, rest of the world, we were most definitely minorities. I mean, I was the only uh, black kid in classes in many, many classes when I was going to school. But in my in my community, there were no there there were no white people. There were no people that weren't African American. And so that then that I saw people uh, switching. You know, I saw their behavior changing, mm. and so it 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 so it made me feel like that there's a certain way that you have to be in this group that you don't have to be in in the other group. And so I read Zora and uh, and others like her as kind of like she is speaking to me. She's she's speaking to me in my community. And I know that in her um, in her lifetime that she had a lot of people and a lot of really prominent writers say, "Don't don't do this. Don't say that. You can't you can't do this. You're just you're clowning for um, for white people or for majority culture. Don't do that." Um, and so I and so I remember hearing that kind of thing. And so maybe that's part of what is um, is a little bit different about my experience because I I had this. I had this push and pull all the time, um, depending on the community. Don't you think that um, the, the place of the novel in the culture has changed, which is both a blessing and a curse for writers? Um, I mean, some of us in here, do you all remember like when The Color Purple came out and the entire black race lost its mind? Like, yeah. there's no, there's not, but people don't care, people are not checking for books on that level anymore. Like now it's like if a television comes out, television show has a depiction people don't like, that's when they lose their mind. But it's been a long time since some, I've heard someone be like, this novel is setting us back. It's just not mm -hmm, how, mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm, and so that, mm -hmm, it, on the one hand, right. as mm -hmm. novelists, it's a little bit of an ego blow that we're no longer, you know, this, the cultural art arbiters, but at the same time, I think it gives us a certain freedom. Like, this novel I've just finished about the man who's wrongfully incarcerated, um, his wife doesn't, work, wait, doesn't wait for him. she got other things to do. It's not really that deep. She just... 
she just feels entitled to her own life. But I'm not really worried, like, what does this mean that I am saying about, mm-hmm. because no one's going to read it like that. It's just mm-hmm. different. We have, so in the Harlem Renaissance, I'm teaching Harlem Renaissance this term, so I'm all about it. You know, Du Bois and Locke, they really believed that literature was going to be the way that black America was going to reintroduce itself to society as the new Negro, this new thing. So there was so much pressure as to every novel was like a job interview. You know, like, how are we going to be presented? What is this going to mean? But I just don't think it's like that anymore. I don't, I think, think, I, I don't think it's like that, but I do think... That and then I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to um, uh, uh, a connection that I had with Zora Hurston. I do think that the that the that the literature is going to be more important. You know, as I was saying yesterday, now that you know the seventh seal is about to be broken. <laughs> I mean, I hope I, that's a metaphor um, and and not truth, um, but. Um, you know, I do think that black literature has a role again that I did not envision for it. For me, one of the things is that because my book is multi-generational, um, the notion of language and class changes, right? So, you know, I grew up in the 80s in Atlanta, and I'm and I hung out with a bunch of boys. Um, Scott Black and Junior were my, you know, were my boys. That was my crew, and um, all three of them. Well, two of them went to jail for selling crack, and Scott Scott was my man, and Scott became a crack addict. And so I remember, you know, thinking about how, you know, and I went to college, right? So in terms of shame, what I mean is like this survivor's shame that I, that I have, you know, because when my parents separated, we moved into the projects. And so I was this black bourgeoisie girl in Durham, but then when I moved to Atlanta, um, I had to learn how to make grilled cheese sandwiches with the government cheese. And my mother would always say, you're a middle-class girl, but then I would see roaches crawling up the wall. So there was always this sort of disconnect. And I think for me, I feel that with Janie. You know, like Janie wants to be part of this community, but there's always something sort of holding her back. And it, at first it made me feel... um isolated, right? But now I feel I'm able to access different class realities and to feel a warmth and a love for, you know, all those different people. Although I will say that I have more love for my mama's people because um, that's my mama, you know? Um, so, so, so yeah. Um, and Crystal's not here, but I want to throw out something that Crystal talked about, which is, um, and I wonder, I'm going to start with you, uh, Stephanie, but Crystal Wilkinson, who's one of my dearest, dearest friends in the world, talked about, um, when you write about the rural South, for some reason, people think it's in the past. 
and they have a heart. Ooh, okay, all right. I got some amens up in here. They 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 don't really see the rural South as um, like a contemporary reality. But it is, you know, you go down I-20 and then you turn off on the, on the um, Monticello exit, you know, heading towards, you know, Edenton and Milledgeville. And all of a sudden you're, I mean, it looks exactly the same. How do you struggle with that, um, uh, Stephanie, in, in your work, you know, depiction of the rule? I, I am... Um I'm really nervous about that, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, one of the things that I, that I was talking to, to my, my mother, and I said something about being uh, from the rural south, and she said, don't say that. You know, and um, mm. I, that, that, I don't know, um, I'm not exactly sure why that hurt her, but it did. You know, she didn't want to be uh, categorized as the Maybe as she a dirt thought that, that meant that you were still using a chamber pot. Right. Or, and, right. and, and, and I am deeply familiar with the chamber pot. I mean, <laughs> deeply. We, we, you know, my grandma's house, we had the, we had the little chamber pot up underneath the bed. It was flowered. So that was classy. <laughs> there you, go. you know what I mean? And then my friends, when I would go down there for the summer, they had outhouses. Mm-hmm. So you had to learn how to negotiate. I got stung by an outhouse. In the outhouse at um, Flat Rock Primitive Baptist Church, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that's how I learned how to hold it. But <laughs> so she was right. she she felt insulted by she, that. She and did, and, and there is this um, uh, there is this division. You know, the the Great Migration happened. A lot of our relatives, I'm sure, uh, probably a lot of people that that uh, you're related to or that you know went north and that felt like a hero's uh, journey and it was and but the people who stayed didn't always feel heroic you know they sometimes felt left behind they sometimes felt like that they didn't do the right thing that kind of thing and so uh, I, I think that's part of it you know not feeling like that you made that choice to move but I mean obviously staying is also a heroic gesture you know, trying to figure out how to make this a little bit better, um, and how to raise your children with uh, dignity. I mean, you know, so all of those things are obviously heroic, but didn't always feel that way to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, before I go to you, Yari, yeah, it's um, my book deals with migrations of different times, mm-hmm. right? But what happens to the land when you have one set of people leaving and then another set of people coming? Tiari, we've talked about how, um, and I'd like you to talk a little deeper, if you would like, about um, the ways that people think that Southern literature must be in a place with no running water. It must be in the country and how you negotiate um, the urban South, which I think, you know, uh, people assume you're one of, and I assume you're one of the leading uh, writers of the urban South. I feel like, like I said, that when I go like to these meetings of the Southern Fellowship of Writers, um, a lot of people are writing a, a rural story. And I understand also that because the rural story is so often devalued that there is 
um, an impu- a need to push back, you know, to claim it, okay. right? Nothing makes you want to claim something more than someone telling you you should deny it. And there is this idea that people graduate from rural things, like you, then you go to the big city. Mm-hmm. So I, compl- I understand that. And I also understand that African-American writing is thought to be an urban tradition. So like when my first book came out, which is called Leaving Atlanta, it's about Atlanta, um, I was not really invited to any Southern things. Um, I think it's because I was black and because of this, because I'm writing about city and I was invited to Northern places, to urban settings. Um, I don't really negotiate. I just write what I'm going to write. You know what I mean? And they can market it as they choose because that's just marketing. You know, I just, I don't, when I write my books, I don't think about people that don't appreciate the type of work that I write. It's not helpful to me. Like when I write my book, I just think about an audience. I think about someone, I usually have one or two people in my mind that are interested in what I do. I think that anytime you're in a marginalized group, be it Southern, be it Black, be it woman, anything, if you think too much about how what other people think about what people like you need to be writing, you're going to end up writing your book about them. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, I just write... I mean, I'm interested in migrations too, but my daddy is from a small town in Louisiana. There was running water, but a small town, and he moved to Atlanta and because he wanted to migrate to a city, but he didn't want to go north. You know, and so I do think of myself, he, I think of myself almost like as a child of an immigrant in a certain way, because daddy had an entirely different life. Like sometimes I'll be complaining about something, and daddy's like, oh, you bourgeois children, I just don't know. I just don't know. But at the same time, my daddy's from a small town. My father has a, a PhD in political science, and he is a diehard Marxist theorist. You know, like he's always like, you know, as was Du Bois. <laughs> but, you know, but it's all super Southern. I never felt, it wasn't until I started publishing that I learned that people like me aren't supposed to be Southern. I mean, we just always just felt comfortable being who we were. And I think coming to this place where your identity is interrogated, once you've already grown, you can only care so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that self-confidence. I mean, <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Because um, that's something I had. And then when I got into an MFA program, I lost it. You know? I lost it. I was the only black person in there. And um, I remember somebody actually saying to me, you, you know, because I'm a you know I'm a poet first, and, and saying you know, you need a glossary on the back of your poems. I'm oh my God, are they still doing that, baby? I see you nodding your head. Yeah, it was deeply demoralizing, and so then it took me a while to you know because I wanted to get my hustle on. You know, so then it took me a while to reclaim that. So when I see that, you know, that you never lost that, you know, it, it makes me feel like, okay, okay. Because, you know, if you're a woman, you know, and, and you're self-confident, sometimes people want to call you arrogant. If you're a man, they're like, yeah, you know. Um, well, we're going we gonna to open this up a little bit um, now. Let me see how we gonna do this. Y'all gonna have to be real loud. I know that's gonna be hard. Um, if you wanna ask a question, does anybody wanna ask any questions? Yes, sir. I'm more house brother here. <laughs> oh my God, it's cutie. Hey. <laughs> I didn't know you went to more house. Speak a little louder. Mm-hmm. 
it do was, you want to repeat that question? When did you encounter Ray? Um, I just when I went to graduate school the first time, I went to graduate school a lot of times. <laughs> it never, it didn't really take until later. You know, I went to graduate school. I finished Spelman unaware of the extent to which African-American literature is marginalized, I just did not know that there were people out there who had not, for example, read Zora Neale Hurston. I did not know there were people out there calling themselves educated that were not, you know, familiar with the text that I was, you know, trained up on at Spelman College, right? Mm-hmm. I thought we had all read Anne Petrie the Street. I'm up here, mm-hmm. I'm in a class at the University of Iowa, and I'm up here alluding to all manner of texts that un- I was under the impression these were canonical. And, and that's when I realized, I was like, oh, that's when I realized two things. I realized yeah, that, that other people didn't know. And then I got mad, I got mad. It didn't give me a complex, but I got mad. And then I did start to feel isolated. I felt almost like I was speaking a language that was close to English, but not quite, like there were cognates so we could understand each other, but not the nuances of it. And that was really, that um, was brilliant it was right traumatic for me, and I wanted to quit the program. And I didn't think I could quit because, you know, I felt like I would let down all my teachers, everyone who had written letters for me. But I wrote a letter, because when I was a girl, when I was at Spelman, I was very young. I went to Spelman at 16. So I learned how to be the person I am early. And when I was at Spelman, I had a teacher. She was a writer. And I wrote to her, her name is Pearl Clegg, and I wrote to Pearl, and I said, Pearl, I'm really, I wrote a long letter, like, I'm really unhappy, I don't know who Zorna Hurston is, and I just feel like people don't understand, I can't, can't get my hair done, I just feel, and, I can't get my hair done. <laughs> and Pearl, I wrote her this long letter, and she wrote me back a postcard. She says, you know you can quit, don't you, question mark. And she always signs her letters, love you madly, so it says, you know you can quit, don't you, question mark, love you madly, Pearl. Well, no, I didn't know I could quit, but I took that information to heart immediately. And by the end of semester, I was gone. And I just decided that there was not much to be gained for me to be in such environments. Now, there are other people, though, who take energy from that environment. They're like, I'm in this environment. I'm going to change it. And that's their ministry, and it's important. But it's just not mine. I, I, I got to just throw something out here right quick about the term race. Um, I push back against the notion of people saying race because white folks don't ever view themselves as race. So when race, so when someone says, you know, and you know, I, I don't mean anything cutie, but when someone says, when were you aware of race? I never was aware of race and I'm still not aware of race. I'm aware of culture and blackness. Um, and I think that until white folks start referring to, like, it's women, it's men, and then it's African-American men, and then it's African-American women. And I always, whenever I'm in my class, I will say, well, this white female writer, and I see them jumping, and I say, well, you know, you have a race, too. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Apropos of probably not your question, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Any other questions?
well, you know, that's 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 your job to do a bibliography, but I would say Alice Childress and Petrie, um, Petri, of course. Um, then you got the 60s, Tony K. Bambara. Um, I mean, and, and one of the things that's really interesting is a lot of people don't know that Toni Morrison had and has a cadre of black women, right? So she's friends with uh, Sonny Sanchez. Um, she was friends with Miss Lucille, God rest her soul, Lucille Clifton. Um, Tony Campombara, she um, uh, nursed her while she was sick. So there's a whole, like, um, of course, uh, Shirley Ann Williams, right? Um, Dessa Rose. But, you know, Dessa Rose was published a year before Beloved, I which know. is really interesting. But this is, if I can just, like, I think that's what one thing, though, what you're pointing out is real, that there are these lulls in the publishing. Like, I feel like for different demographics of people, there'll be a moment when, like, you're, like, in style, and there'll be, like, a whole mm -hmm. bunch of people, and then it'll drop off, mm -hmm. and then it'll come back. Like, the amount of work, like, Paul Marshall. to discover in this time period you're talking about, because, you know, in a generation before, like, people who, you know, the, the generation that has really should all, they mostly have passed away by now, that, but they're, that... The work you have to do to dig them up is evidence of something, you know, really significant that it, sh it shouldn't be this much. It shouldn't be this hard, right? We shouldn't be here like, um, mm -hmm. uh, we shouldn't. I mean, we're all have degrees in this and we're, and we're, and we're reaching because I do think that in the, the 50s and 60s, it was a quiet, like, you know, like um, the street was written the same time as Native Son, you know, and they were considered to, you know, but when, but Paul Marshall, um, uh, Brown Girl Brownstone came out in 1959. I mean, that's not my, you know, I'm an 18th century gal, so that's not really, you know, my purview. But um, well, the library is free for everybody. Library cards for everybody. But yes. don't forget about Octavia Butler. I, I love her. And with uh, fantasy and science fiction, she's mm -hmm. a, and mm -hmm. Gloria Naylor. I, it just hurt me when uh, oh when God. she passed. She, that was such she a loss. it was such a loss. And uh -huh. she um, she was a Jehovah's Witness in her, an earlier iteration of her life, as was I. And so I was especially connected I to her. Yeah, but really, and but there are a lot of wonderful writers publishing. It's just that, uh, just as Terry has, has mentioned, there some of them get highlighted, and then there's a flurry, and then mm -hmm. there are just a few in the interim. And I also think, I mean, to go back to the bibliography, I feel like um, when I was in graduate school, now this was poetry, and there was, you know, a, um, you know, an absence of. It, it was like everybody would compare my work to Rita Dubbs. And I love Miss Rita. Miss Rita is a friend, but my work is nothing like Rita Dubbs. So they had two people. They had Langston Hughes and they had Rita Dove. And every time we would come up in workshop, they would say, this reminds me of Thomas and Beulah by Rita Dove. And I'm like, no, right. And so what happened was I was in this class and I, comp I still have it 20 years later. I compiled an anthology of black women writers, black women poets from 1950 to, at that time, 1995. And so I had those people at my fingertips. And I think that 
you know, it's up to us. People always say we don't teach it in school. You know, one time there was a story about Mr. Amiri, Amir Baraka, and um, he was someplace, and this young black woman was complaining. You know, he was talking about people that we study, and this young black woman was um, complaining about they hadn't been you know, taught this, and it wasn't in the school, and she was just going on and on and on. And that's actually his phrase that I've taken, and he said, but sister, don't you have a library? And so I don't mean that to be derisive, but I'm just saying that just like our, you know, our our elders did in the 60s during the Black Arts Movement, like it's up to us to reinvigorate, you know, that conversation, I think. I, I also think it's important to push the publishing industry as much as we can to That's ask right. for them. Uh, Roxane Gay just gave this um, gave this talk, and, and she was saying that she has so many people contact her saying that a publisher has said, well, we already have Roxane Gay, so mm-hmm. we don't need your, mm-hmm. your work. You know, so I think that's important, too, to push on the other side. Okay. We're just going to go around this way, if that's okay. Yes. say honestly catch up as best you can you know stay busy with your reading but this is the this work is in fact hard work but it's also the joy and pleasure of your life and so don't get so worried about all these other things that you forget that you know creativity create creation is from the creator it's their gift it's a gift that's given to you and enjoy it as that so read what you want to read, write what you want to write, you know, join a writing group with other, it's also very helpful when you have a writing group with a lot of other black women in it, so then you don't feel like you have to hold it down by yourself, <laughs> because you don't. And so just, because we want to, I want to see your joy on your pages, I want to see the delight, I want to see the wonderment of exploration, and I feel that if you feel too much like, my pen is my weapon, I have to, you're going to lose that. So just I, I don't know you. I've never seen you before today, but I like your energy, and I feel confident that you are going about it in the best way. That's the best way for you, and the best way for you is going to be the best way for the work, and that's going to be the best way for all of us. I think also one of the things is don't look at it as you have to do everything now, right? Um, if I may be allowed to get a little old black church lady up in here, our time is not God's time. And so I was talking about, I first did archival research um, 29 years ago or something like that. And I just started using that archival research about Georgia in my novel. The other thing is, if you look at it as a life's work, right? Start thinking now that you're young. 
you know, and your life work is going to change, right? But start thinking about what's my life's work. Then you don't have to feel like catch up because it's all part of your vision and your journey. And, and it'll come when, you know, in its own time. Did you have something to say? Just that I really do think it's a process, you know, and that in some ways we all go through it. We, we all start with these, um, with all of these pressures and all of these things that we feel like that we have to have to do. And I think that's normal. And I think that that's to be expected. And at some point you'll say, I, I don't care about what that person said. Or, you know, someone said to me, don't write in dialect. And uh, one of my uh, workshop um, conductors and, you know, and I had that in my head for a long time that I was not supposed to put dialect on the page until I finally just said, I don't have to listen to that. Uh, this is the way this person <laughs> talks. I can, I can write it this way, but it, it was a process for me and I, that I had to go through. And, you know, you can, you can speed it up um, by just keep, keep writing, keep reading, but it's, you know, it's normal. So we're going to, it's two, two more, this sister right here and the, the sister in the, uh, the beautiful green jacket. Okay. Three more. Three. She's had her hand up forever. Okay. But we, but, but we need to make this quick because you know, at 1145, we don't got to go home, but we got to get the hell up out of here. Okay. Yeah. You, I think you definitely need to have an agent. I believe that, honestly, going to publishing without an agent is like going to court without a lawyer. Don't represent yourself. You're Because one thing, you want to publish this book really bad, and therefore, next thing you know, you'll be paying them because you're so eager for the experience. Your agent is not her book. She can have some distance, and she knows things that you don't know. Um, and I think that sometimes people think they can't get an agent before they haven't gotten an agent. They, they're like pre-rejecting themselves in their head. You know, I just know the industry doesn't like what I write. You know, like they have all this kind of beleaguerment narrative in their head. And then they don't, tr they give up fast because there's a feeling like you're going to reject it before it rejects you. No, you can get an agent. You will get an agent. There are a couple ways you can get it if you don't have contacts, which a lot of people don't. Um, you can go to, you can one, go to writing conferences and get some contacts right quick. People do that. You can also look at books that remind you of your book and see that those people thank their agent and say, hello, I see that you represented this book. My book's in the same vein. Would you care to look at it? But just to be really persistent. Um, but that said, there are, there are, you also can get books published through small presses, for example, without agents. And that, you know, and that works too. There's so many different routes, but I just want to urge you not to internalize a rejection that hasn't happened yet. Mm. You know, because that happens all the time. But it, it, but it can be done. Like, this is one of the most helpful things when I was a young writer before I had my first book. I started meeting, like, random people who had written books and had published books. Like, just, and I felt, you know how some people get really inspired from meeting, like, an awesome person that's done something? The regularness of it, I was like, I'm, I can do that. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm as whatever as this person. It, it was a lot, it was demystified. And so I think that just remember that so many people have done this successfully and then you can do it too. All right, we're gonna, okay, and so this is the last question, but let me just say 
that um, we're going to move out, you know, after this. And if you want to fellowship, okay, I encourage that, all right? Yes. Listen. quiet you, but I just want us to be able to answer that. Um, I'm going to just make this real quick, and it may sound silly to people, but this is who I am. I pray, and I commune with the ancestors, and I also know that these people don't know my power. I know my power, and if that's what the word is coming to you as, don't be paying no attention to nobody. Don't let nobody hop up in your head and beat you from the inside out. Okay? Now that's what I got to say. And then we're going to end with the guests. <laughs> no, and I, I, I agree with that. And I, I also just want to say that it is social justice work to represent people on the page. That person has given you their, their voice in their life and to represent on the page. And that is, that is social justice. So, um, you know, as I said, it is hard sometimes when it feels like that there are other voices saying don't, don't, or you can't, or you shouldn't. But uh, try your best to make it the, the voice on the page as authentic a person and a character as you can. And that's, that's, what you, that's what you do. And surround yourself by people who think that what you're doing is a good idea. You know, like don't, don't set yourself up to be discouraged, particularly when your work is in its young forms, when it's very tender. Don't show it to people who, don't show it to haters. Like, avoid haters because they will throw you off track. And just surround yourself, surround yourself with the love that's out there for you. Because once you get solid and secure in it, you'll know the next steps. You all, thank you so much. Thank y'all. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.com.